Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I am a child. I last a while. You can't conceive of the pleasure in my smile. You hold my hand, rough up my hair. It's lots of fun to have you there. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. One of the toughest assignments you'll ever have is writing about your own life. But sometimes, as Lane has discovered, those stories strike a chord with readers unlike any others. So today's topic, getting personal. So Lane, why do you hate writing first-person pieces? I just feel like first-person pieces, if most of the time, they're not that good. And (laughs) if you're going to do it, it's got to be really, really good because it's about you, right? It's like your life, your window into your world. So... I, I'm, I have a very, very high standard for first-person pieces, and I don't do them very often. Um, the first one I did was my editor, Mike Wilson, made me do the first one. I'd never even, like, conceived of writing a first-person story before. Bad, Mike. Bad. And he was like, you go, you know the story, go do it. Um, but it's it's scary, right? It's like, it's like opening up your own guts for the world to see. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I try to be very sparing about my, um, my topics for first-person. So what's the advantage of them, do you think? I mean, you've done a few. You're not like I know. You don't even like to. You don't even like to put yourself in a story at all. But like, you, and you. But you have written a few. Yeah, I've probably done no more than ten in my whole thirty year something year career. I've, I don't think I've done more than ten. But um, I remember all of them, and they were all. I think it's weird, right? Because when I'm writing a story now, I try to write stories that no one's heard before. I try to think about like what else has been done and what can I do differently. I want to do something that no one's heard before. But when I'm writing first-person stories, it almost always seems like it's something that everybody has experienced. You know, I I, I want to hit those universal moments of like I'm telling a story that I know every other mother, wife, young woman can relate to. You know, and so I, I think there's a lot more um, universality in, in some of my first-person stories. Um, and they also, they really do get an amazing reaction. I mean, it's kind of crazy. People who never talk to me about my projects or my news stories will come up and react about first-person stories. So are you thinking consciously of the same, like, you, you know, thematically what this piece is about, what that chord is that you're going to strike? Are you going into it with that in mind? Or is yeah, this just I mean, feeling like it's some it's from the gut and you just want to... Usually it's something I can't let go. You know, it's something that I start obsessing, thinking about so much, and they've all been kind of small moments, you know. The first one was when my son lost his little stuffed elephant out of the back of the car, and it was like everybody and their brother had a story about losing a stuffed animal somehow, you know. And I wrote one about my grandmother being moved into a nursing home and kind of like losing her identity and her hair. They were going to cut her knee-length hair. So that, you know, that was just a story that I feel like, and I've written a lot about my kids, you know. There's like these, these like rites of passage type stories that become 
first-person moments for me. But usually they're framed a lot tighter than my other ideas are, and I, it's, it's a moment I want to capture, you know. Which leads us right into, so I was going to ask Lane to read this piece that she wrote about uh, her son, her oldest son, Rye, when he started driving. And I remember, we were not working together at the time, but I remember when this piece came out, and it just, man, it hit me like a gut punch, because I wasn't sure that I'd ever consciously thought about what you wrote about, but it was so true, and it felt... Um, of course, it's about parenthood and the journey. And uh, so anyway, so we're going to make her cry, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, when she reads this. But And it's not that long. So we thought, just hang in there for a minute, and, and we're going to tell you this story. Yeah, and this story came out about – the other thing I think about my first-person stories, I've usually told them a few dozen times before I start to write them, you know, because it's stuff I discuss with my friends and stuff that is going on in my world. Okay. Uh, the story is called When a Teen Gets a Driver's License, Mom is Left with Memories. I couldn't wait for my son to get his driver's license. For the last 10 years, ever since my boys started school, I've been stuck behind the steering wheel, carting them to little league games and dance recitals, drum lessons and play rehearsals, piano lessons and haircuts and birthday parties. I live by my watch, always anticipating that moment when I have to cut out of a meeting or skip lunch to pick them up and take them wherever they need to go. Then I wait and wait and wait until they're done. So in October, when Ryland turned 16 and passed his driving test, I scraped together $2,500 and bought him an SUV as old as he is. If you drive your brother around, I told him, I'll pay for gas. I imagined long afternoons writing, never checking the time, sunset walks with my dogs instead of threading through traffic, date night movies with my husband without, who has to go get the boys? I never thought about what I would miss, not being in the driver's seat. We spend so many hours in our cars coming and going. So much of our together time is just taxiing around. I dismissed those trips as a waste, another thing I had to do. I hadn't considered the conversations, the inside jokes and anecdotes, singing Neil Young songs, discovering Green Day, watching the world blur by. During half-hour drives to elementary school, we practiced spelling words and logged license plates, learning all the states. On a drive to middle school, I overheard Ryland telling his brother about a girl. We planned vacations in the car, made Christmas lists, discussed God and clouds. They talked about their friends. I told them about my newspaper stories. Always there was music. The Beatles and Grateful Dead on my scratched-up CDs, Linkin Park and Word Alive pumped through their phones. In the car, our interests overlapped. No one could retreat to his own room. The first time I ever talked about sex with my boys, we were driving across the state. I remember watching their faces in the rearview mirror. We could never have had that conversation around the dinner table. We needed to not look at each other, but to be together without the distractions of home. The car was our cocoon. Ryland drives himself to school now. I don't get to listen to NPR with him. He drives himself home from band practice. I don't get to hear his recordings of their new Skrillex song. And when he picks up his brother after drama club, I'm grateful I don't have to race right there from work. But I miss all the debriefing. Ryland got a B on his math test. Their friend Jack made the soccer team. By the time they finally get home, they both say they're too tired to talk. They have to do homework. They've already shared their stories with each other. I try not to feel left out or superfluous, to remember I want this, their independence. But it's hard to accept that I have to let go of one of the last threads that ties me to their teenage lives, that they no longer need me to take them where they want to be. On Saturday, we ran out of turtle food. I'll go, Ryland said, grabbing his raised cap and keys. I followed him and tried not to sound desperate when I begged, Can I come with you? Of course he wanted to go by himself. Of course I let him. And as I sat in our too-quiet house, worrying whether he would make it to PetSmart, 
I remembered the first time I ran errands with Ryland. He was a month old, skinny and scared. But when I lifted him from his car seat, he looked at me and smiled. And I realized that everything, even going to the grocery, was so much more fun when my son was with me. Since Ryland started driving, I've gained hours for myself, each one tinged with fear. And I lost all that time with him. Trips that used to seem like chores now feel like missed opportunities. Lost talks and shared songs, a few minutes alone with my son, going somewhere together. Aww. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's been gone to college for three years now. I still can't read that story. <laughs> I know. That was a killer story. I mean, we've talked about uh, Bobo before, of course, which was also a killer story. But this one, I don't... This one for me, really, um, I don't know, man. It just struck such a powerful chord. And you're right. It's like it's the universal, right? But it's, I don't know. It's just amazing. Um, and even listening to you read it right now. And, of course, I have to give Lane a minute. She's trying to recompose. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped my glasses. <laughs> yeah, no, Bob, you know, the story about Bobo losing the stuffed animal was his loss. This was my loss. Right. You know, this was totally my loss. And, and. I wrote another one when he went to college, um, to tell, like saying, like, you're going to miss, you know, doing laundry and, and doing dishes and grocery shopping. Because I wish someone had told me that when my kids were little. You know, you, you told me, you, you guys don't know this, but Maria was like my mommy mentor as well as my wonderful editor. And my kids were six months and two when I started working for Maria. And uh, I remember her telling me that, like, don't be mad. You have to get up early and pack a lunch for daycare. Like, write them a little note, draw them a little picture before they could even read and let them know you're there. And, and I, I wrote that column for myself, but also for other people to say, like, this is coming. Enjoy what you have right now. You know? So what made you stop and write it? I mean, what made you it, – was it like you said, you, so you, you come in, you're talking to people, you're just – you're sharing this sort of insight that you've realized, oh, shit, what just happened here in my life? I mean, a lot of my friends have kids the same age, and a lot of us became friends because of our kids. And, um, you know, I felt like we were all kind of going through this at the same time where everyone was sort of debating, like, do we get them a car? Do we keep driving them? Do we give them control? Or do we keep them under our wing, you know? And so this this probably was a conversation for a few weeks or months before it became a column. And when you do something like that, did you did you talk to Rye and say, guess what, I want to write about you and... Yeah, he was like, what are you going to write about the sex talk, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I let him read it before I put it in. And then it was like, okay. Yeah, that's, it was like, right. that's generic enough, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, so yeah, and we've talked before the other times, sometimes people have sort of forced you to do it. Or like they've said, your editors have said, you know, stop talking to me about that and go write it right. down. Right. And then does it feel natural once you're into it? Or are you fighting it all the way? Oh no! The first person ones. Once I get the, once I give myself the permission to write them, they usually are really easy to write mm -hmm. because I've said them out loud so many times. You know, I've kind of practiced and rehearsed it with my friends. So, those are, I think they're easier to write, but I think it's harder to edit. You know, like I, the one I wrote about when Rylan went to college. I know Alex Zayas, our, our editor at the time, was um, she was apologetic about cutting out pieces of my life. You know what I mean? And and I think it was harder for her to be as heavy-handed as she should have been, and she should have been. There was stuff that needed to be taken out of there, you know, but it's harder to be like, oh, this is part of your life, doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's just erase it than it is, like, you give me too many details about the courtroom scene, you know. What's what's the advantage, I mean, aside from, obviously, you're 
like you were saying, you, something about um, doing a personal piece feels universal. But it seems to me like one of the other advantages is. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, you're such a gifted storyteller anyway. You know what places are meaningful, you know where to stop, where to, where, you know, what, what had impact on you. I'm thinking about like, okay, for writers out there who are thinking about it, what is the advantage of doing it in a first-person way? When do you make that decision that that's the better way to go? Then, for instance, going to find somebody who's going through this. Yeah, and we've done that too the same way. I remember one of our coworkers, um, his daughter had uh, failed the driver's test like eight times, and he wanted to write about that. And the editor said, go find out who's failed the driver's test the most times. And let's embarrass and, that and kid. And we'll do that guy instead. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. I, I could have completely gone out and find another mom who's got her kid a car, but I didn't have to report this. You know, there was there was no reporting involved. If I was interviewing somebody else about it, I would have had to say, well, what songs do you listen to on the radio? And what kind of gossip do they tell you on the right. way home? And this was just like me getting to like regurgitate things I'd been thinking and feeling about for a long time. You know, they're also short, I have to say. I think my, I, I try to write <laughs> shorter in my uh, first person ones than I ever do in my reported stories. Um, when we were talking about this topic, we got to talking about some of the uh, Pulitzer winners that had been first person or essays. And um, you mentioned uh, Grady's Gift, which is a really cool story if people haven't read it, written by Hal Raines of the New York Times years ago. And he was middle-aged white man reflecting on growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. And basically, he wrote The Help before The Help. You know, he wrote about this woman who, Grady, who had um, cared for his family. And and we were just, we were talking before the podcast about like, it, I'm not sure it could have been written quite the same way that w- without that experience that he had and bringing that to life, right? Right. And and, and that, I looked up the uh, the features Pulitzers over the last, I mean, the 20 years they've been doing this. And there were only two that I could find that were actually written in first person. And both of them, oh, not including the one from last year, actually, right? Right. The, the mm-hmm. one from the one that won the Pulitzer last year was a, a, a reported essay mm-hmm. um, that was first person-ish, had first person elements to it. So all three of the ones then that have won the, the Pulitzer, um, that it were first person were written as opinion pieces or ran on the opinion pages. They weren't really considered like, you know, news or or even features. It was like a whole different way of looking at it, you know. There's something really powerful and like I I love his description of – and so so just read just a paragraph from Hal Raines. um, When he's setting the, the scene and taking you back to Birmingham and he says, it's difficult to describe or even to keep alive in our memories worlds that cease to exist. Usually we think of vanished worlds as having to do with far-off places or with ways of life, like that of the Western frontier, that are remote from us in time. But I grew up in a place that disappeared, and it was here, in this country, and not so long ago. I speak of Birmingham, where once there flourished the most complete form of racial segregation to exist on the American continent in this century. 
So, like, what a great, I mean, I don't even know how he got the inspiration to do that that piece, but to sort of set you up and say, I'm going to take you back to what feels very foreign now, but really was my existence and that of a small child who really had no kind of, he was filtering everything as a small child. And then the, I guess what set it in motion was that they were going to have lunch, kind of reconnect with Grady, and now all see themselves in a modern world looking back and having, you know, and then kicking themselves for not having helped her and supported her more than they should have. I mean, more than they did. Um, yeah, I think a, a, a lot of that piece um, seemed to be about memory, too. Mm-hmm. You know, how he remembered things versus right. how she remembered things. And, um, yeah, and regret. Right. You know, like, well, why didn't we do something better? Why don't we do something different? You yeah. know, looking uh, at it from this t- point of view. I, don't, I mean, I don't think somebody could have written that story, you know, just like the help. Somebody could have reported that story, but his perspective was so unique and his connection with being able to get her to talk about her mindset and her memories at that time. A reporter couldn't probably have gotten that. Yeah, know? I'm not sure she would have. I mean, and even recounting it for someone um, as opposed to this little boy that was, you know, right. her buddy, her pal back in the day. Um, yeah, no. So so these are these can be tough, though. I mean, that that to me feels like what you're doing, too. So you have to be willing to cut yourself open. Absolutely. You, ha- you have to be willing to sort of and acknowledge that it's coming from your point of view, that this is your that this is your take. Right. And put yourself out there to be open to criticism, too. You know, I mean, there were people who were like, why you let your 16 year old drive your 15 year old around everywhere? That's not cool at that point. Oh, you, had that, you, know? you had that reaction. Yeah, there was too. some backlash. And when I wrote the story about Bobo, the elephant out the car window, I got probably as much hate mail as I did compliment mail because people were like, why would you get out of your car in the middle of a rainstorm in the middle of the highway and walk around looking for a stuffed animal and endanger your children, you dumb mother? You know, so <laughs> so there was a lot of like, you got to be willing to take it, you know, um, if people aren't in agreement with you. You were talking about how, though, this is a, this is a good way for you as a writer to practice your voice. Talk a little oh, bit yeah. more about that. I mean, I think that's one of the huge advantages. Right, young writers are always like, how do you find your voice, you know, or how do you hone your voice as a writer? And I don't know that there's any way to do that other than writing, you know. But when I'm writing my reported stories, I try really hard to put myself in the mindset of the characters I'm writing about. So what would it be like to be the bus driver or the firefighter or the grandmother or whatever? And, and I try to find my voice through theirs. But when you're writing first person, that is my voice, right? That's who I am. So I feel like those stories are a lot more um, um, true to how I sound as I talk, you know, right. rather than trying to be more writerly. And they have a lot more insight in them. I'm afraid sometimes when I'm writing that I'm, you know, misconstruing what people were thinking or feeling or right. I'm not certain my reporting bears out what I want to say behind that, you know. But when it's mine, yeah, here you, know. you can have as much authority as, you know, there's no more authority than that. <laughs> Let's talk a little about putting yourself in the story, not necessarily writing an essay about, you know, something that happened in your life, but you as Lane DeGregory, reporter, a character in a story, you're also disinclined to do that. <laughs> I've, no, I've known other writers who find it very comfortable. I mean, but what, what do you think about? What do you consider when you say to yourself, am I going to put myself in here? And if I am, what, 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 what are the bars for you? What do you have to meet? I never would think about that. Like, I would, I would seriously, <laughs> would never I, would, do it. I would never think about doing that, you know, f- from the beginning, like putting myself in the story. The only times I've done that in my whole career has been when the editors have insisted, not even suggested, but insisted. <laughs> and I find it very uncomfortable because, 
I think the way that I, I grew up in, uh, I didn't go to journalism school, you know, I, I was an English major, but I, it, my journalism training was like, you're not part of the story. You know, you're, we didn't have our picture in the paper. It wasn't about us as a reporter. You're supposed to be bringing us the facts mm-hmm. and the information and giving it to the readers and sort of being a, a neutral, hopefully still more objective observer. Um, so I think it's very not in my nature to think of putting myself in stories. And every time I do it, it feels really yucky um, and like I'm breaking up with the story needs to be or should be. But on the other hand, I've been listening to a ton of podcasts lately, and podcasts have so much more of that. Podcasts have so much more of, of the narrator bringing in their own opinions mm-hmm. or seeing, like, what the heck just happened, dear reader, right. you know, and kind of, like, William Thackeray in Vanity Fair, that was the first, like, novel I read where the, the author did that. He stopped and was like, okay, dear reader, I'm going to tell you something that you need to know over here. And I was like, screw you, William Thackeray, put me back in the story. You know, I, I didn't <laughs> like that being pulled out and told what to think or feel by the author. Um, but the, the it's it does seem more effective in podcasts sometimes. I'm like, thank you, Sarah, for, like, giving us this insight at this moment where I'm going, like, what just happened, you know? So, and I think is more, you know, as they want us as journalists to be more of a persona, to have more of a, you know, you can find me on Twitter, you can look me up on Facebook, and that right. didn't used to be a thing either. So I think first-person stories give your readers an insight into who this writer is as a person as well, you know? And, and maybe make it more um, comfortable to read their words about news stories once you know their story about their cat or whatever it is that they're sharing, you know. I can see them as different things, though. I can see, like, you having a conversation with you around how you reported a story being interesting sort of podcast fodder, right? But not necessarily that you have to be in that story as you're telling that story. Because like you, I'm sort of like, I want I want, it's a story about someone else. And to me, it's like the reporter's in it if there's a reason for you to be in it. If you um, you become a character for some reason that you just can't escape because you're reporting a scene and suddenly you're part of the scene or, you know, you have to p- play foil to whatever is happening, you know. Otherwise, it just feels like, you know, yeah, you're drawing attention away from the people that you're supposed to be putting attention on to you. Right. The mirror is not supposed to be on me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I have done sometimes like I remember I wanted to write a story about uh, my husband was teaching drum lessons and one of his drum students had a really interesting story with his grandmother. And I really, really wanted to write that story. But I was and I didn't know the kid or his grandmother at all. I just knew because Dan had told me the story. And I remember my editor at the time saying, well, just say my husband's a drum teacher and this is one of his students. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't about me. I didn't become a character. It wasn't about Dan. He wasn't even the character. It was about here's how I heard this story, mm-hmm. you know. And that was kind of a, a nice compromise. You know, it, it like it gave the readers a nod to explain. I do have a weird connection to the story, but it, that was it. I was in and out, you right. know. Right, right. Yeah, it, 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 I think it can work. But it doesn't. It doesn't work often. I think. Uh, but I do like the. I. I think that whole sort of like. I think people are interested in how reporters get a story and how they experience a story and what they take away from it. But uh, again, I mean, I'm not even sure that all finds its way into the story. Well, I think also it takes a good editor to make sure it's not too much, you know, or yeah. it's not too self-serving or whatever, too. That's a great note to end this podcast on, just there. Uh, Okay. So if you have questions for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. 
Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.